be here, and I echo the sentiments of my uh, compatriots here in in saying how much I appreciate being able to be here with you uh, in this place and to uh, find brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, even 9,000 miles from home. So we're, we're grateful and delighted to be here. Thank you, ladies, for the lunch. It was delicious. Or did you call it dinner? I, where I come from, it's lunch. Okay, Some call it dinner, but that's an argument we've been having in the car, so don't worry about it. So anyways, thank you so much for uh, all that you have done, and we feel uh, very, very much welcome here. Uh, in the morning, uh, these two men here, who preached to you already, uh, gave you an, an idea of the church from the larger perspective of the church, uh, we might call the universal church, the global church, or what the church is all about in terms of its place in the world. Uh, now, some of those things translate down into individual churches, of course. Uh, but much of what we're talking about in terms of what is the church's mission, what is its message, what is it, these sorts of things, it is in many ways um, the larger outer sense of the church's large, large global sense. But it's my task to go into the center of that and talk with you about things in the life of a local congregation, okay? To come and talk about specific things of a local body of believers. There is a universal church, of course, which covers the totality of Christ's elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But there is also individual congregations of those elect people gathered in various places. Like, for example, right here in this place. So I want to take you inside the church a little bit, talk about some of the mechanisms and realities of life in the local body. All right, so I'm going to start with the question, who should lead the church? Then we'll talk about what should be contained in the worship of the church. If worship is one of the most important things we do, then the question is, what should it contain? And then thirdly, we're going to talk about the uh, not-so-unimportant topic of money as a part of what it means to be a local congregation. So those are the three things I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the first of those now, who should lead the church, and the second sermon I'll talk about the worship and then tomorrow morning as we start up again I will talk about that third subject so you'll notice that that brother Kerry and brother Dominic are taking the outer part and I'm packed in the middle okay so my three are in the center theirs are on the outside all right my text this uh, afternoon then is first Timothy chapter 3 and verse uh, starting in verse 1 and here's what the scripture says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare 
of the devil. I have uh, served as pastor of four different churches. Uh, the first church that I was a part of, I was an interim at the church, and uh, that particular church was governed by a staff of people, a group of lay people who basically charted the course of the church. There was a pastor, and then there were some assistant pastors, if you will, and then staff people below that, secretaries and, and administrators and committees and all sorts of things outside. So it was, it's what we would call a staff-led form of church. The second church that I went to was led by a group of deacons who believed that they were the ones in charge of the church. And they made it very clear that as a pastor, I reported to them. They were the head body of the church and the pastor was subordinate to them. That is, by the way, very common in Baptist churches in America. The third church that I was in was in a rural area in uh, the central part of the United States. And in that particular church, there was no leadership other than me as the pastor. I would call it a, we, we would call it a single staff church, one individual person. And all the responsibilities of the church fell on that one individual, me in this case. So I did not have anyone serving with me. Now, there were deacons in the church, but they didn't see themselves in leadership. They just saw themselves as men who you could call on once in a while for something if it needed to be done, and they'd take care of it. Okay. Now, all three of those, like I said, there's four, but all three of those are not biblical. They're not described by the New Testament. None of these is how Paul intended in writing to Timothy and writing to Titus, and then all the other letters where he describes various aspects of the church. None of those are indicative of what Paul would have considered the church to be. Paul would not have in any way asserted that a group of unordained deacons could take on the role of leadership in a church. That's not what he assumed deacons to be. So there is a fourth means, and it's the ch it, it happens to be in the church, happens to be the polity in the church that I am now. And that polity is a elder-led church an elder-led church. So here's what the New Testament argues is the proper format for the leadership of a local church. All right? Here's how the New Testament says a church ought to be governed, what its polity ought to look like. The Bible establishes that the local church is to be led by a plurality of elders. A plurality of elders. A body of men tasked with the responsibility before Jesus to spiritually shepherd his church. A group of called men who lead the, the spiritual life of the church. And so the answer to the question who should lead the church is right there. A plurality of elders. Now explore, let's explore that a little bit. There are two terms used interchangeably in the Greek for the term elder or bishop or overseer, bishop being the word used in the King James, overseer and elder used uh, in other translations. One of them is episkopos, and the other is presbyteros. In fact, if those sound familiar, they should, because the Episcopal Church 
and the Presbyterian Church use those words directly to describe themselves. But the two Greek words are episkopos and presbyteros, and they are used interchangeably. They mean someone endowed with authority in the church. Now, the term episkopos connotes authority, an individual with authority. Uh, the term overseer or bishop, someone standing above and having authority over others, is the idea of episkopos. The other word, presbyteros, connotes a shepherd or a teacher, a leader of some sort. Okay, So when the two words are used by the Apostle Paul and others, they're put together as used both as the title of an office and the role in it. So it's one thing to have a title, it's another thing to have a, a purpose and a role. Okay, So the two words are used, as I said, interchangeably in that sense. For example, in the passage I just read here, Paul uses the word episkopos. And he's using it in the singular because he's describing the office itself, right? If anyone aspires to be, uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So he uses that word to describe the idea of the office. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, the word presbyteros is, appears in the plural then, referring to the work of elders as a whole. Okay, so there's an office, with a title, and there's a work that comes together which is made up of a group of men, all right? So, as I said, the two words are used interchangeably in the New Testament, but they're most often used in the plural. Most often used in the plural. Multiple men, multiple men serving in this role in a local body. Now, that may not be such an issue for you in the Reformed churches that we have examined in our trips here through Kenya, there has been multiple men serving in elders in each of those churches. But I can assure you that there are many Baptist churches that consider the pastor uh, to be a pastor, and they don't see a need for other pastors slash elders slash overseers in the church. In other words, they endow the one man with all the authority, and they set him aside and say, he's the guy, and he's He's the one that leads the church. That's not what Paul argues in these words. He argues that the church is to be led by a group of men who have been called and set apart for the purpose of leading the churches spiritually. Now, this idea of eldership goes all the way back to the very beginning uh, of Scripture. In fact, the, the concept of eldership begins during the history of Israel. You can go back in the Old Testament, you can see it very clearly. The concept of elders is already in place while the Israelites are in Egypt. If you look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 16, it speaks about elders amongst the people that were there in Egypt, even in slavery. We see God appointing elders to assist Moses in his duties of judging Israel after the Exodus in Numbers chapter 11. Remember, he was trying to do all that by himself, and his father-in-law came to him and said, no, you shouldn't do that. Appoint men to help you with that task. And then elders are mentioned as leaders of Israel during the entire historical narrative of the Old Testament. You can see them in Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and even in the post-exilic writings, there's eldership within the history of Israel. In fact, elders themselves are held responsible by the prophets for their leadership of the people before God. The, the prophets come first to the elders and say it's, it's you who are the problem. The reason the people have gone astray is because of you. 
Okay, So this idea of eldership is already well-developed by the time we get to the New Testament. So New Testament eldership, as Paul describes it here, would have been very familiar to believers in the early church, given that they were common in the history of Israel. So nobody in the early church would be looking and saying, oh, elders are something, oh, that's something new. What is that? No, no, no. They've been around for centuries. The idea of elders has been around for a very long time. Now, there are other... uh, ideas of the concept of elders. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, it speaks of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers or pastor teachers. Uh, You have these various ideas. And it is highly unlikely in that verse that Paul is establishing this as a list of offices in the church. Okay, It's highly unlikely that Paul would have assumed when writing to the Ephesians that they should make sure that there's always an apostle there, that there's always a prophet, that there's always an evangelist that is helping to lead the church with each one having some sort of different function. That's not what he's talking about in that particular sense. For example, the the concept of, of an apostle is clearly limited to the first generation of men called by Christ on the grounds that they never appointed any others. You don't see Paul ever going out and finding another apostle. He doesn't tell Titus on Crete, go find some apostles and make sure that they are in the church. And I would say that the modern concept of apostle that's true in some branches of Christianity, is, it, it clearly violates the scriptural evidence that the office did not extend beyond the originals. There are no apostles in the world today. I know there are men who say they are, but that's unbiblical. And additionally, there's no evidence of prophet or evangelist being used as a title or an office in the New Testament, leading churches. You don't see any of that sort of thing either. So eldership then is uh, very, would have been a very familiar idea to the Israelites as, I mean, to the church as Paul would have taken the concept out of Israelite history and, and used it in the church. They would have understand that. So the passage that I read here in 1 Timothy 3 gives us a set of qualifications that an elder must have. Because the first question you should ask is, okay, if there's to be a plurality of elders, then what are those men to be? Okay. Now notice, I didn't say what those men are to do. I said what those men are to be. Okay. What is their character? What is their nature? Okay. We could have a great deal of discussion about uh, what they do. And we will as we go by, as we go along. But for now, I want to just talk about what they are because that's what Paul does here. You search this list and there's only one spot in here where he actually intimates as to what an elder should be doing. All right, so I don't have the time to go through the entire seven verses and exegete it. That would be like 17 different sermons. All right, so let's just start with a few of what I think are the most important aspects of what an elder is supposed to be. In verse 2, there are several that we'll focus our attention on. First, Paul says that an elder must be above reproach. The word that's used here is a word that means free from accusation, having a good reputation, okay? Being blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean sinless, obviously, because 
where do you find a sinless man that could act as your elder? Well, they don't exist, right? Because there's no man on this planet other than Christ himself, whoever's been sinless. So Paul clearly can't be saying an elder has to be sinless. What he has, what he is saying is that he has a, a good reputation. He, he's he's um, um, someone who is of such good reputation that even his character flaws and his sins, and they may be many, do not cast any sort of disparagement upon himself, his position, his message, or the church itself. In other words, he should be a man who has such a good reputation to outsiders, a good reputation both outside and inside the church, I think this is inside the church, that he is, we could look at him and say, yep, he's a flawed man, yes, he has certain sins. He has certain things that he doesn't see in himself. He has certain things that are sinful, but that doesn't detract from him having the authority to preach to us and shepherd us and guide us. It doesn't take away from his role as an elder. He's above reproach. He has a good reputation there. People see him as trustworthy and reliable. His public persona is one of a good character. People see no contradiction between his life and his message. He walks the walk. What he says, he does. What he preaches to his congregation, he does himself. People see him as a leader and they're willing to follow his example. They see him as someone who's willing to lead and sometimes to deal with difficult issues that require him to step out and deal with those kinds of things. We'll talk more about that as well. He's not a hypocrite. People see him as one who builds up the church rather than making it an object of scorn. He doesn't become a focus in such a way that people will look at the church itself and say, oh, that's that church with, with that guy and that guy. Oh, we know about that guy. We know what he's about. And so, therefore, his whole church is thrown on the trash heap along with him. In other words, the reputation of the church does not suffer because of the reputation of the man. Okay? Now, again, we're talking about a, a plurality of elders. We're talking about multiple men who are drawn together to serve in this role, a group of men who serve, but they're all men of good reputation, above reproach. That's number one, Paul says. Number two... Paul says that this man must be the husband of one wife. Now, the, the phrase itself in the Greek is rather difficult to translate into English because the nouns for husband and wife are words which can also mean man and woman. So it's a man who must have just one woman. Okay, so the, the proper translation, or probably the best translation of this be that this is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Or say it like this, a one-wifed husband. A one-wifed husband. A one-woman man, a one-wife husband. Okay. Now, is Paul insisting here that an elder must be married? Is that what he's arguing? Is he saying that he must be a married man? Given the context and the Greek construction, it is very likely that Paul is only referring here to the reputation of the man as it is seen in his single most significant relationship. 
Because if you're a married man, what's the most significant relationship that you have? Other than your relationship with Christ, what is the most important one? Of course, that's your spouse, right? That's your wife or your husband. And so a, 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 this is probably Paul referring to here to the reputation of the man as it's seen in one of the most significant human relationships that he holds. And given Paul's larger theology as seen throughout his letters, it's very unlikely that Paul is insisting here that an elder must be married. It's not his main point. Because it would contradict his own teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 7, 32 to 35, where he speaks about singleness and the value of being single and how you can dedicate yourself fully to the Lord if you don't have a, a spouse to deal with, if you don't have a wife that you're having to take care of, you can put your whole life into the ministry. So it would contradict... Paul himself, if Paul is insisting here that an elder must be married. No, he's probably here suggesting that the issue here is the character of the man as it is seen in that one very significant relationship. One very significant relationship. And I'm convinced that Paul includes this because he knows that the vast majority of men who serve as elders would be married. Because the vast majority of men are married. And so the logical conclusion is that a, a, an elder would be someone who is uh, married, likely. And so you could look at his marriage. And his marriage would be an excellent evidence of his faithfulness to the church. You know, later on in this same section, Paul talks about the fact that if, if a man can't manage his own household well, how is he going to govern the church, right? And we kind of think about that and say, well, that's like, okay, what is Paul doing about his children? Or what is the elder doing about his children, right? But what if that is also a man managing that most significant relationship with his wife? I mean, if, if he struggles, if he struggles in his marriage and struggles to be a man who remains faithful to his wife and lives out the Ephesians 5 picture of what it means to be a self-sacrificial husband. That should tell us a lot, shouldn't it? About whether or not he can lead a church. If he is, after all, the head of the church. Now another, of course, significant point that shouldn't be overlooked here is that Paul is clearly making it a fact that an elder must be a man. The New Testament could not be more clear about this. And Paul, in other places in the New Testament, will always appeal to the creation account of Eve being formed from Adam. He always goes to that to make his point that the man was created first and the woman from the man. And there's an order there. There's an order of that which gives the man certain roles and responsibilities and the woman certain roles and responsibilities. Paul says that also is true in terms of eldership because the eldership is going to be based on this hierarchy. So that phrase there is an implication that Paul is going to say that a, a, the, the elder should be a man. Okay, we'll, we, we will talk more about that. So, one of the best ways to determine whether a man truly is above reproach is to examine his most significant and visible human relationship in his marriage. We should not set aside men to eldership who are young, Paul says, right? Novices in the faith. 
but also who have not demonstrated through time what it means to be a husband, a proper biblical husband, as it's defined by Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, for example. Okay, So Paul insists that an elder must be one who's above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. But Paul also goes on to say that the man must be both sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, I'm putting those two together because I think they fit together like this. The term sober-minded means prudent or moderate. Literally, the phrase means safe in mind. Safe in mind, meaning his mind is safe. The second phrase, self-controlled, is thinking here we typically think of self-control as we see it in, for example, in Galatians 5.23 about controlling your passions and you know, controlling your urges and so forth. We sort of think of it that way. But there's a, there's a different sense here. Paul is probably thinking here of a different kind of self-control. Not the self-control of how we behave, but the self-control of how an elder thinks. Okay, so this notice why I'm putting them together. Sober-minded, safe in mind, and self-controlled. Putting them together, Paul is probably thinking of this idea of sober-mindedness, safe in mind. Or, more specifically, men who think well. Men who think well. What is the primary tool of the elder in his role of leading the church spiritually? What is the primary tool that has been given by God to the elder to help lead the church spiritually? And the answer is the scriptures, the word of God. I mean, here we are, we're examining the word of God, we're examining what it says in 1 Timothy 3 in order to ask ourselves, okay, what does the Bible say about what it means to be an elder, okay? Therefore, what we are doing is we are asking the question, what does it mean What is the primary tool, and and how important is this? When Paul says sober-minded and self-controlled, I think what he's saying is an elder is a man who thinks well, thoroughly, about the Scriptures. Or you could probably just say it more simply. He actually thinks about what's in the Bible. He's actually thinking scripturally. He's asking questions. Okay, this has come up in our church. What does the Scripture say? To that. What do we do with that from the scriptures? And as the group of elders meet together and deal with a particular thing, their quest together isn't to say, well, George, what's your opinion? You know, Stan, what do you think we ought to do? No, it's what does the scripture tell us we ought to do? What does the Bible say? I think that's what Paul's talking about. He is talking about the idea of an elder who takes the, the, the mental energy that it takes to consider the word of God and to apply it into the situation. Does it take time to prepare a sermon? Does it take thought? Does it take effort? Yeah, it does. And I'm going to talk about that in great detail when I get to my third sermon on the issue of money. But it takes energy, doesn't it? It takes effort. There are times when I find myself back home taking a piece of text and I literally have to wrestle it to the ground. I have to I have to spend I have to figure this out. What is this verse saying? What does this mean? 
Because it's not my opinion that matters. It's what the Lord has revealed. I need to understand that before I stand before my congregation and preach it. That's what it means to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, yes, there's an element of self-control in terms of one's life. I mean, Paul does say he shouldn't be a drunkard. Okay, that requires self-control, right? But I think from Paul's perspective, the far more important kind of self-control is the kind of self-control where we are focused on Scripture, on what God has revealed, putting the energy that it takes to do that. So he must be sober-minded in self-control, but also in that same verse, 1 Timothy 3.2, he must be respectable and hospitable. He must be respectable in that he's orderly, he's modest, he's proper. The, the literal definition, I think, of this word would be something like um, having a decorum, polite and restrained. And then add to that hospitable. He's welcoming, he's friendly, he shows warmth, particularly to strangers. He's the kind of person who you can listen to when he preaches and say, you know what? That man actually cares about me when he preaches. When that man brings the scriptures to me over a particular thing going on in my life, I see his care. I see his love for me. He's not just taking the Bible out and using it as a hammer to beat me over the head to make me do what I'm supposed to do. He's bringing the word of God out of a deep sense of love for others. He's hospitable and warm to his congregation. And they want to listen to him because he is these kinds of things. Which leads then to the last of these in that same verse, 1 Timothy 3, 2. He must be able to teach. Now again, that's the only one in there that actually speaks of a particular thing that the elder does, right? Because all we've been talking about is who he is. Not what he does, who he is. But in this case, Paul is talking about the man being able to teach. He is skillful at instructing. He has an aptitude of applied scholarship. He's able to take concepts and make them understandable by others so that they learn. Now, does it not seem reasonable that Paul is assuming here that a man that is able to teach is also a man that is able to learn? Because you cannot teach others what you do not know. You cannot teach another person what you do not understand. So able to teach has the correlator able to learn. Having an aptitude for learning. Understanding deep concepts. And then communicating those concepts. And Paul says, be able to teach with all patience. Patience. Because I don't know about you, but it is rare that someone learns something from me the first time they hear it from me. No, human beings are designed to learn by repetition. By repetition. We go to church every Sunday and we sit under the preaching of the word every Sunday because we need to hear it again and again and again and that requires patience on the part of the man. You know, it's 
many young men come out of seminary and they come to their first church, right? They're all excited about their first church. They get to preach there. Now they walk to the pulpit with their, with their sermon and they've got notes 40 miles long and they're ready to deliver this grand sermon that they have put together because they have gone to seminary and they preach it and it's the most boring thing on the planet and nobody ever gets anything out of it. Yeah, he spewed massive amounts of information on his people. He gave them every Greek term that was used here and everywhere else. They didn't learn a thing. Apt to teach is not the ability to spew information. Apt to teach is the ability to communicate difficult biblical concepts into the minds and hearts of an audience. Now, I'm absolutely convinced, and I think my brothers would agree with me, and I think you would too, that the only men who can do that are those called and gifted by the Spirit of God. Not everyone can do that. But that's why Paul puts it as a qualification. An elder should be apt to teach. And I would also suggest that apt to teach also has the connotation of not only knowing how to teach, but wanting to. Being apt to teach is the sense of, I want to help people understand Scripture. So the heart of an elder isn't just his ability to communicate, but his desire to communicate with others. I love to preach. I love to stand before my congregation on Sunday mornings and open the scriptures before them and preach. And not because they pat me on the back for it, but because I want to share with them what it is that I have learned from the Lord in my own study during the course of the week and see their lives affected by it as well. There's no greater thing in seeing what the Spirit of the living God does in the hearts and lives of people when the Word is delivered to them. The primary job of the elder is to teach. The primary job of an elder is to teach. Brother Carey told us a little while ago that the task of the church, the mission of the church, is to make disciples of the nations. And what did he call a disciple? He called a disciple a learner, sitting under a teacher. Therefore, God has set aside, the Spirit of Christ has set aside elders to this task, to teach. Let me say that differently. Let me say that like this. All other functions of the job of the elder, important, but all other functions pale beside the awesome responsibility an elder has to teach his people the whole counsel of God. Everything else is secondary. Uh, I saw not too long ago a survey that was done by a church, um, by someone who was a church um, examiner. He does polling of the church, okay? And he asked pastors, what is your number one complaint about being a pastor? Your number one complaint. And the number one complaint, far and away, was too much work, and I'm always feeling burned out. Never can get it done. I'm working 60, 70, 80 hours a week to accomplish my job, and I'm worn out. I never get a vacation. I never get away. 
But I would tell you, my friends, that the reason why that is is because so many pastors think, so many elders think, that it's their job to take on all the responsibilities of the local church. This is why a plurality of elders is important. The other elders at Grace Fellowship, the church that I pastor, those other elders have said to me, listen, we brought you in as an elder because we're going to give you one task and one task only, and that is to preach. We will take care of all the rest of what needs to be taken care of in the church. And the deacons will take care of all of the challenges of the day-to-day busy work that needs to be taken care of. But in terms of of shepherding the people of the church, we're going to handle that. You go to your office, shut the door, read the text, pray, meditate, wrestle, whatever you got to do to come out on Sunday morning and bring us a message. The elder's primary job is to teach his people the whole counsel of God. Now, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that many in the church assert, assume that the pastor's job is everything else other than preaching. I had a man years ago, an older man years ago, that told me when I went to his sickbed, he said to me, look, pastor, I don't, know, I don't care what else you do. I really don't care what else you do. But when I'm in the hospital, I expect you to be there. That was his understanding of what it meant to be an elder or a pastor. But that's exactly upside down. That's exactly upside down. The people will often chafe against teaching as the primary task of the elder. No, 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 no. We don't want an elder who teaches us. We're not interested in men who teach us. No, no. We want men who counsel us and give us therapy and they make us feel good about ourselves. We want a man to come and, and, and just, just sit beside us and pat us on the head and tell us platitudes that everything is going to be fine. We don't want him bringing scripture to us. We want him just bringing platitudes to us. Paul says it, remember, in 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And here's what he says to Timothy next. Listen carefully. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And what was that ministry? Preach the word. That's the job of the elder. He is is not only to be apt to teach in the sense of able to do so, but it should be his desire. It should be what he wants to do. The true reputation of an elder is not determined by his community relationships or the strength of his marriage but by his unwavering passion to advance the spiritual well-being of his flock through the God-ordained means of teaching. The elder has been called by God to bring the people of God into full maturity in Christ. Read the verses beyond Ephesians 4.11 and Paul will make it very clear of what the teaching is to do. It is to lead to spiritual maturity in Christ. 
So these are some of the qualifications. Notice I didn't have a chance to go through all of them, but I, I did give you a number of them. I think the most important ones through all of this. Now, very, very quickly, let me add to this that the elders of the church should be supported by the deacons of the church. There's two offices listed in the New Testament. The first of, that office is el- first of those offices is elder. The other is deacon. And they're mentioned, of course, in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. We see it also referenced by implication in Acts chapter 6. This particular office is a supportive office. Now, you remember I said that one of the churches that I pastored was governed by deacons in the sense that the deacons stepped up and thought that they were in charge. And that is a very popular view in Baptist churches in the United States. But it's not biblical. The picture that you have in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13, beyond the the verses that we just read, um, is not giving an office with significant spiritual leadership. There's no mention of teaching, for example, in the role of deacon. So deacons are important as a part of the so-called leadership of the church, right? Because it is an office, yes. Men are called and set aside and hands are laid on them in order for them to become deacons in the church. But the role of the deacon is never to be confused with the role of an elder. The role of a deacon is to be supportive in terms of handling the more mundane realities of church life so that the elders could focus their attention on preaching and teaching. That's exactly what's going on in Acts 6 when you had the issue of the various widows not getting fed and taken care of the way that they should. And so the apostles said, set aside seven faithful men who can do these works so that we can dedicate our attention to teaching and prayer. Okay, so the elders focusing on teaching and prayer, governing the spiritual lives of the people, and the deacons taking care of the more mundane realities of everyday life, meeting the physical needs of the church and its people. It's an important role, yes, but it's subservient to the role of the elder. Now, let me tell you then in closing what the focus of the elders are to be. We've talked about this to some extent, but let's Let's go ahead and flesh it out specifically. I'm going to give you seven things that the elders are to focus on. Okay, so let's talk about the what they do sort of thing. Okay, number one, the focus of elders is to provide spiritual support to the flock, overseeing the spiritual needs of the people, their spiritual lives. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Lead these people. Lead them to Christ. Use the scriptures to lead these people to Christ so that they are conformed more and more to the image of their Savior. Do that. So the number one focus of elders is to provide spiritual support for the for the flock. It's their primary task. Their primary task. Secondly, they will also be responsible for administrating the church, but not administrating the church just to make sure that the budgets are met and, you know, and that the right number of staff are in place and etc. right? Not, no, that's not what we're talking about. When I say administrate here, I mean with the purpose of spiritual growth. 
In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The elders who labor in preaching and teaching are to be given a double honor by the congregation. They're to be considered worthy by the congregation because they are administrating. Let me put it this way. They cast a vision. Now, many parts, of the, many parts of the world, vision casting is all about, well, where do we think we want to go? Okay, where do we want to be, you know, in five and ten years from now? And let's, let's come up with a neat little tagline, right? A neat little tagline that we could put on our website and we could put on our church sign. Everybody driving by will remember that little thing, right? That's not what we're talking about. That's not vision. That's, that's administration as the world sees it. No, what is the vision for the church? The vision for the church is what our brother here told us, the task of the church, <clears throat> to evangelize and to, more importantly, grow in the fullness of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal as elders is to get our people conformed more and more to what it means to be Christ-like. Far too many pastors think that their responsibility is to help their people be happy when their primary responsibility is get their people to be holy. Happiness is fine, but holiness is the vision of the church. It's the vision of Christ and his people. And we as elders have been given the responsibility to administrate that. Thirdly, to provide accountability. Why multiple elders? Why? Just because it sounds like a good idea? Or is there a practical reason behind it? And there is a very practical reason behind it. One man standing by himself, attempting to do the work of eldership in a church, will not have anybody helping him do that task. And what's going to happen to him? He's going to burn out. He's going to run out of energy at some point. Or, worse, he's going to fall into temptation and sin. But with a plurality of elders, with a group of men working together, upholding one another, holding one another accountable, asking hard questions of one another, prevents the fall of a pastor and elder and leads him to continue on the holiness path that he's leading his church on. He needs to be held accountable. For 11 years, I pastored in a small church in the middle of the country, and I was the pastor, and there was no one else. There were some deacons, but they didn't care. It was all on me, and it was tough. Nobody to talk to about things. I mean, I could call my friends, of course, but nobody in the church that I could sit down and say, hey, look, Susan here has a problem. This is something that's going on in her life. I see some sin rising up over here. What do we do about it? It was all just me. A plurality of elders, a group of men, provides accountability. Number four, as I said, it prevents the burnout and fall of a pastor as the singular source of all spiritual effort. But more importantly, in this sense, it also provides accountability for the direction that the man is taking in terms of his preaching and teaching. I've had elders come to me and say to me, I've had, I had one particular elder who was a very close friend of mine in the church I now pastor. He died just a few months ago, unfortunately. But he had the temerity one day to come to my office and sit down across from me and say, 
you are missing something here. You're, you've overlooked something here. You need to think differently about this and that. I won't share with you what it was. But. And I looked at the man and said, thank you for that. I needed to hear that. And I went back and realized, yes, I had taken a, a wrong turn in some areas. He held me accountable. He set my feet back on the path. That's a reason for a plurality of elders. But number five, it extends pastoral care, right? As I said, you don't have to have one man doing all the work. We have roughly 80 families in our church, and each of those families is assigned to one of the elders. And so each family has an elder that is their elder. And that particular elder stays in contact with the head of that family and brings back to the other elders issues that may be going on in their lives in order to pray for them, but holding them accountable. If you were calling them and saying, hey, what's going on? We didn't see you in church for a few weeks. What's happening? Are you okay? What's the problem? Or, hey, uh, what can we pray for? What's, you know, what's happening in your life? Guess what? I don't have any families that I'm assigned to. I don't have any families I'm assigned to. They don't assign me any families. Why? Because my job is to preach and teach, and i got to stay fixed on that. They're going to take the rest of that ministry so that I don't have to do that. It spreads the work out amongst the plurality of men. Sixthly, it disciplines the flock when it goes astray. It's very difficult for one man who is a pastor to have to deal with all the discipline issues in the church. But a plurality of elders can do that. And then finally, the elders support the deacons in their role of mercy to those in need. The elders can stand behind the deacons and say, okay, here's some things we need you to deal with, but we are giving you the authority. We're delegating to you the, uh, the, the responsibility to handle these sorts of things. In our church, for example, we have a benevolence ministry that takes care of the needs of people who are in needs of, of financial assistance or those sorts of things. And we have, as elders, we've delegated that to the deacons. Your job, you do that. You take care of that, okay? But we'll stand behind you. We'll tell you what resources you have available. We'll make that, but we'll leave that to your hands because that's all part of just dealing with people in that sense. We're going to be concerned with teaching and support. The Bible is clear. The New Testament is clear that the church, the local church, like this one, is to be led by a plurality, a group of men who have a vision for leading the people onward to holiness through the teaching ministry. And Paul gives to us a picture of what they are to be as men. And so we should strive in our churches to make sure that our churches have a polity which matches what the New Testament says. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, I thank you for the church. I thank you for this institution that you established, this organism, the very body of Christ himself. And you have left instructions for us in your word about how it is to be led. So let us be faithful to your word. Help us, Father, Remind us from Scripture that our job as elders is to lead the people of Christ more and more into his image. Help us to do that. Help us to do it as a plurality of men. Father, my prayer would simply be this, 
you call out the men that are to step into the role of elder. You call them out. You know who they are. You've gifted them by your spirit. You've given them the ability to teach. You have pulled out men and set them apart as men who are above reproach or sober-minded, self-controlled. Father, call them out so that every church is faithful to the picture that we see in the New Testament of how a church is to be led. Thank you for allowing us to consider this topic, O Lord, and thank you for your spirit bringing it to us. It is in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ the Lord that we pray. Amen.